on the, the original cover of the Roswell Daily Record, which was July 8th, 1947, said the uh, Roswell Army Airfield captured a flying saucer on the ranch in the Roswell region. Flying saucer in 1947 did not mean alien spacecraft. That did not, there was not that connection yet. That, was, that wasn't until much later. Um, and at the time, the Air Force, or should I say the Army Air Force, the Air Force hadn't split off till later that year. Um, the interplanetary or the extraterrestrial theory behind this had not really uh, become popular. Uh, there were still ideas it was Soviet or uh, there was all the other explanations were on the table. Extraterrestrial really wasn't there. And it's interesting, even through the early 50s, it wasn't called extraterrestrial, it was called interplanetary. Hey everybody, it's Cam Brower. Thank you for listening. And I want to ask you to please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Back tonight in the studio, I have UFO believer and skeptic William Poulin. We're going to talk about Roswell and much, much more coming right up on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My Alien Life Podcast. Tonight in the studio, I have back UFO historian, lecturer, researcher, believer, and skeptic, William Poulin. Mr. Poulin is a strong advocate of the scientific method and the extraterrestrial theory. Tonight, we're going to talk about what is known as the incident at Roswell and Roswell in general and what goes on there, what it has to offer. Welcome to the podcast again, Mr. Poulin. Thanks for having me on again. This is great. Thank you. Love to talk Roswell. Yeah, absolutely. So you're back from your annual pilgrimage to Roswell. Is it annual or how often do you make that trip? Oh, it's an annual and it, and it is a pilgrimage. It's an emotional trip above and beyond the research. So yeah, annual. I've gone, it's got to be over 13, 14 times. So it's been, <laughs> it's definitely a pilgrimage for me. So. so when you're there, is it work? Is it pleasure? Or how does that work and how do you spend your time? Uh, it's all work. I mean, my, my days literally are wake up at 6 a.m. mountain time, uh, have some breakfast, get my pads and gear together, get my laptop ready, and then um, head to the museum. Museum opens at 9 a.m. I'm literally there all day until they close. And I head back to my radio, to my, radio my, uh, my accommodations, and rest and get ready for the next day. Um, I've never, I've never gone to explore the festival. I've always 
gone to the festival to go to the conference, the speakers of the museum. I've never gone to see any of the other events. It's all it's all work. But to me, that it's a working holiday. I love that whole process. So uh, one day I'll go in and actually go to the festival. <laughs> but that day hasn't happened yet. So. So what does the work actually look like when you're there? Um, are there materials available? What do they have as, as far as uh, if the researcher goes there and wants to spend as much time as you do researching? Well, the researchers and the authors, they have their books for sale. Uh, a lot of them give out flyers and handouts, uh, papers they've written over the past calendar year. Um, and then the uh, all the individuals appearing are all, in, they have their tables lined up in the museum. Uh, so they're all available to interact with at your leisure. You can literally sit down. I sit down with Larry Holcomb or uh, Kevin Randall or Don Burleson at, at the extra chair at the table and just start up a conversation. And uh, it's, it's always specific to the UFO topic. Um, so I literally do my research there. I'm taking notes as we converse and just, and of course things stay in my head. Um, so it's literally, it's really just a one-on-one interaction as opposed to messaging emails or actual uh, material that you take with you. And, and I find that um, uh, a much more friendly, cordial interaction as opposed to just emailing because you, you, get, a, you get a take on the, the passionate or the dispassionate take that person has and you get to know them as an individual, as a friend, as opposed to just somebody who wrote a book. And it, it gives you a perspective as to uh, not only their professional take, but their their personal positions. Uh, myself as a researcher, uh, I have my professional positions on different cases and different scenarios because I'm data driven. But my my personal positions may be slightly different um, because I'm thinking on a personal, less objective uh, angle when there's a personal take. So um, it's really just a lot of interaction between myself and the researcher. And um, there's, there's never enough time because that between attending all the lectures that I go to, and I try to go to as many as possible, I think I went to 11 or 12 over the three-day period, plus the two panels at the end of the day, um, there's never enough time to sit down and interact with these guys. Um, and, and that's always a shortcoming, I guess. I email, I email all these guys during the week, uh, during, the, during the year. Uh, I have a lot of interaction with them, except for Mr. Randall. I haven't seen him in a while. So, so but it, that that face-to-face interaction is much more, much more enjoyable than just uh, communication from a distance. So that's what you get in Roswell. So, what did you hope to find this year? Did you have a Did you have a list of ideas or, or things that you'd like to come across, or things that you had in mind uh, for research before you got there? Well, you know, I I, I had a single-minded mission, <laughs> really. Um, you know, every year I try to spend time with each and every researcher uh, that has more of a grounded perspective on the UFO issue. That is not uh, convinced it was extraterrestrial per se, but at least gets to their position the correct way through examination of the evidence. But this year, uh, come I think it was in April, the website that is run by the museum uh, posted that Kevin Randall was coming back. And so that, that made my mission easy. I spent as much time as possible with Kevin Reynolds as I could. Um, he had not been to Roswell since 2012. And I had not seen him in person since 2014 at a conference in um, Edinburgh, Texas. So a, a full five years of just emailing him had gone by and you, there's only so much you can do. And I visited, I visited his blog spot and listened to his podcast and, and keep in touch that way. But 
I I picked his brain for all for the entire weekend. I spent as much time as I could with him. Um, I'm guilty of of uh, spending the the lion's share of my time with him, uh, but only because I'm not sure if he's coming back. Uh, and I, I get the feeling he's not. So I was trying to take full advantage of that. So that was my that was my singular mission entering Roswell this year, and I think I accomplished it <laughs> under under no uncertain terms. So. So who are the static figures there that uh, you would undoubtedly come across every year and, and they're there to draw a crowd? Um, well, Travis Walden is there year after year. Uh, Don Burleson, Frank Kimbler, Don Schmidt, uh, Tom Carey, uh, Stan Freeman until he passed away this year. Uh, Kevin Randall was a standard until 2012. Um, Kathleen Martin has been a constant there. Um, Mainly because she traveled with Mr. Freeman. Now she was. This was the first year she was there by herself. Uh, so that's the group that's there year after year. And there's always a few other ones that come and go as time moves along. Um, I know Peter Robbins was there pretty consistently until about two years ago. Um, and part of that is because the the museum has kind of downsized the number of speakers they feature. Because in previous years they used to use the uh, Roswell Civic Center, which is run by the city of Roswell. But now there's a Galacticon um, festival that same weekend. So those, those facilities are not accessible. So they've had a downsize number of speakers because they have limited facilities in the museum. They have a video room, a North Library, and then the, uh, there's an upstairs, upstairs room at the uh, UFO Museum. So because of a limited number of, of uh, avenues to hold lectures, they've downsized the speakers. So this year they had, I think, 12 I might be wrong in that number, but uh, somewhere around that number. Um, so you have you have the consistent ones that are always there, and three or four that come and go every year, and uh, sometimes a one-off. So um, Travis Walden draws huge crowds, huge crowds, and uh, I've never gone to one of his lectures. Um, and that's not that's not that is not that has nothing to say with my position on his case. I've just never gone to one of his lectures. I've always gone to one of the ones that were more. Uh, more science-based. I, you know, that's my angle of the UFO issue. So, um, but the, but the main group always draws big crowds and they, they, they sell a lot of books and there's a lot of interaction. Their tables are always full. And, um, and that's only a good thing for a conference. I mean, uh, the Roswell conference and I like using conference as opposed to festival conference is much more professional sounding. Uh, the Roswell conference is, is very well run very well organized. And regardless of whether one person agrees with the positions of the researchers or the lecturers, they know they're getting uh, a quality presentation and uh, it's family friendly. And it, and because the speakers are, uh, they are accessible to the public in every way, shape or form. That's only a good thing. You're not having to pay for going to a lecture. You're not having to pay for dinner with the speakers. You pay your $5 fee to get inside the museum which is a huge amount of money, and I'm being sarcastic here. Um, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's, that, that's pretty awesome. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it's a $5 fee to get to the museum, or you can buy a three-day pass for the, for the conference, and I think that's $15, something <laughs> like that, some outrageous amount of money. And after that, it's free. Wow. Every lecture is free. And what other conference can say that? I, I don't know of any. Every other conference, they charge you for access to the speakers. They charge you for dinner with the speakers. Here in Roswell, I mean, um, 
three years ago during the 70th anniversary festival or conference. We'll go, I guess we'll go back to festival. Um, I, I, uh, I started interacting with some of the speakers that I've been kind of cautious with because these are, these are gentlemen I knew from afar. I didn't know them as on a friendly manner. And I really just kind of pushed myself with a position where, you know, I need to make, I need to make a friend here. I need to connect on more than just a professional level. And I did. And now my, my, my dinner with Don Schmidt before the festival is a yearly occurrence. And it's, it's, um, uh, that just doesn't happen in a lot of other conferences. It's much more, uh, the bottom line is much more important. Profit is much more important. And Roswell, um, it's a different scenario. It really is. It's, it's, uh, and I'm not trying to promote the festival per se. I'm just stating the facts that it's a much more different scenario in the, at the Roswell festival than it is to other festivals. And that's not to say other ones are not well run and offer a wide range of speakers. Uh, but what I'm saying is that it's much more cost effective and family friendly in Roswell, uh, because we all know, uh, Vacations don't pay for themselves. And at Roswell, you can enjoy a destination city and quality speakers, great presentations uh, for far less money. And today's day and age, that's, that's important if you have a family. Very important. So do they have enough facilities to accommodate people there? How many people do you think show up for this every year? Um, I, I had a friend last night say that, or quote, that the the population of Roswell is about 55,000 and the population usually doubles the weekend of the festival. Now, part of that is Galacticon, but the majority is the Roswell festival. I mean, the population has always exploded. You have individuals coming in for the festival. Um, now a lot of those people go to the festival and don't go to the museum or they go to the museum and they don't go to lectures. Um, there's always that percentage that don't take this stuff seriously. Um, but the facilities are there. Um, the rooms fill up, but they have room for more. There's, there's always, there's never been a shortage of space to accommodate people. Um, so that's never, that's never been an issue. And because, because the museum is, the, the speakers are accessible to the public during a lecture, if a room is full, if, if all three facilities are, are full, there's lecturers there in the museum that aren't lecturing that very moment. And so the museum is full whether there's a lecture going on or not. And so there's a lot of interaction. So um, there's never been a shortage of, of room for anybody there. Uh, even, uh, what was it? Uh, the middle Saturday last year was the busiest day that the UFO Museum had ever had, ever. And they've been around since the early 90s. Uh, and that says a lot. <laughs> this festival has been going on since the mid-90s. So, And I, I recall that day vividly last year. It was packed. But there was still room for more. Um, so they haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, we'll see what transpires if they, if they get over, over full. But uh, it's, it's a very well-attended conference year after year. And, and I've never heard anybody say they had a horrible time there. I've never heard a negative review. So um, I, I know it starts, yeah. you know, uh, it, it's, it's July 4th. But, uh, you know, prior to that, you have Alien Con, which is, which is a big draw. Yeah. But it, it's pricey. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's amazing that, that they put together something like that in Roswell, New Mexico and, and draw such a huge crowd. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a destination city. I mean, there's nothing close to Roswell. I mean, there is, uh, <laughs> there the is, desert. there is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. But I mean, if you're going to go to the Roswell conference, the festival, 
you, it, it, it takes a Herculean effort to get there. You have to, there are no really, uh, the majority of cities in the country don't have direct flights to Roswell. So you have to fly to somewhere else and then transfer to another, to another flight. Um, I know this year, uh, Tom Carey, uh, Don Smith's partner in research, uh, flies from Pennsylvania where he lives to Dallas and missed his connection. And so, uh, even when you get to a city that has flights to Roswell, those aren't very numerous. So if you miss your connection, you're waiting. And Mr. Carey stayed overnight Thursday night in Dallas and didn't arrive in Roswell till late Friday afternoon because he missed his connection and he missed it by, I think like 20 minutes. And I, I, I thanked him for making the effort to get, to come out, but, um, it takes an effort to get there, whether you fly or drive. So all the people coming to Roswell really want to be there. They made the effort to make that trek to a town, to a city that's not easy to get to. We're not talking Chicago or Denver or LA or, or even where I live, San Antonio. I mean, it's, this is a uh, smallish town or, I mean, it's a big town or a smallish city that's not close to anything. The biggest metropolitan area to Roswell is, um, I guess El Paso, which is not a huge place in and of itself either. So El Paso, Albuquerque is, I think a little over four hours drive time. So it's not close to anything really. Um, my friend Larry Holcomb took eight hours to drive from Dallas to Roswell. So it's tough to get there. Yeah, it's definitely not a hub. And if you're uh, going to Roswell, that's, that's, where you're going to end up if you if you have to be there for this um you know it's uh i i imagine there's limited flights getting in and out of there so it's probably pretty tight at times but um i think it's a one of the things for the locals too did you um do the locals are they into the whole ufo fandom or are they absolutely <laughs> over it are they are they attending as well um yeah i i don't know <laughs> i don't know uh I've, I've heard in certain circles that there's always, and I guess this would be, you could say this about any city that has an event that is connected with that city. Uh, but I heard there are locals that are just tired of the whole UFO thing. Uh, whether they believe in the actual event or not, they're just tired of being connected with the UFO phenomenon. Roswell, Roswell, Roswell. And I'm sure there's locals that love it. Um, as far as what percentage of locals actually go to their own festival. You know, I don't know. Um, everybody, I, everybody I know that attends the festival, um, comes from somewhere else. I don't know anybody on a personal level that lives in Roswell that goes to the festival. Um, I have several friends that work at the museum that obviously live in Roswell, but that's a different dynamic there. But, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I would think there's a little of both, but the Roswell, the connection with the UFO event and Roswell from a, from a financial standpoint, that's a big cash cow for the town. It really is. I mean, um, the economy is driven a lot by the UFO event and, and which is kind of ironic because the actual event, uh, took place almost 80 miles Northwest of Roswell. And there's other towns that are closer to the actual, uh, debris field slash crash slides than Roswell is. But it got connected with Roswell back in 47 because the air base was there and it got the ball rolling and, and, and what have you. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that would be an interesting poll. 
for the Roswell Daily Record to run. You know, what percentage of individuals that live in Roswell love the OVO issue or don't? But I, I don't think that poll's been taken. <laughs> so yeah. that would be so interesting. So is there yeah. any tourism associated with the actual site? Can people visit Roswell and then actually go to the, the, the crash site? Uh, there's the number of individuals that actually know where the debris field is, is very limited. Uh, I think only maybe three or four people know, uh, and that's done on purpose because there would be individuals going out there to just trample the place up and destroy the evidence, uh, destroy the area. Um, there was a, there was a group running tours to the quote unquote crash site, uh, but it wasn't the right place. They were taking them out to an area of the desert that was just an area of the desert. Yeah. And people were paying good money for this. So it was a fraud. They were, they were taking them out to an area which is, uh, let's say, within 15 miles of the actual debris field. And I don't know the actual site. I don't. But I know the general area within, within 10 miles, let's say. So the area the tour was going to wasn't anywhere near it. It was within, yeah, within 15 miles. And... Uh, but people were going. It was a pretty popular tour. So, um, yeah, the, the actual debris field site is protected because of what the public might do to it. Um, it's my friend Frank Kimbler. He's an um, assistant professor of geology at the New Mexico Military Institute. He spends his summers looking for physical evidence out of the debris, the, the debris field. He knows where the actual debris field is. He's doing science there. And certainly from an archaeological standpoint, or a geological standpoint, that science would be skewed if you had people going to the debris field, leaving their trash, leaving metal. Uh, he told me years ago, uh, actually a couple of years ago, uh, that someone uh, dumped a bunch of uh, galvanized nails on the debris field, on the area. And he spent his time picking up these nails as someone who just wanted to trash the site. And if, if the general public knew where that site was, I think a lot of that would go would be going on. So, uh, yeah, but that tour was <laughs> that tour was a hoax, to quote <laughs> some researchers. It was a hoax. So, so did you yeah. have any any big surprises this year when you were there? Um, no, it was it was just it was just enjoyable. It was an enjoyable week, basically. Uh, no, it was great. It was it was wonderful. Um, uh, there was uh, there was a, there was a nice tribute to Stan Friedman uh, at the end of the second panel the close of the festival. Um, beyond that, it was a typical well-run professional uh, event. Um, there was some new information, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, presentations by Frank Kimbler. Uh, he had tested the material that, was, that has turned out to be anomalous. Uh, it hasn't turned out to be non-terrestrial per se, but it's, it's interesting what he's found there um, and that, that angle. Um, and at the same time with Kevin Randall, he's, uh, we were discussing some subjects that have been, uh, shown to be illegitimate through his research and yet are believed by a good percentage of the UFO community. So we had a good discussion about that and it kind of confirmed what I thought about them, but, uh, talking with him face to face, it, it, it confirmed what I thought. Um, uh, beyond that, it was no real big surprises, but it was just, uh, again, more information and, uh, and it was just, just a good time, <laughs> just a good time. So, I think when, um, when there's lack of ev- evidence or tangible evidence, something that you can actu- actually hold in your hand, I think that people really like to hold on to, uh, 
to to what's there. They don't like to let it go, even though it's been evidence or or talked about for for you know a long, long time. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. My my friend Mr. Kimmler or Frank says uh, it's touchy feely. He's a science guy. He's he's concerned with the physical evidence that may or may not be able to be retrieved. A touchy something you can touch and feel. Uh, well, like what has been claimed, the I beams, the the uh, bendable metal, the things that were retrieved by the uh, by the uh, airfield back in '47, those were touchy feely. Those are things you can touch and feel, and that's what we need. I mean, uh, uh, I was discussing things with uh, with Kevin, I think, on the middle of Saturday, and we both agreed that uh, you know at this point, 72 years after the fact, the only thing we what well, we need to prove the case uh, to prove it definitively. Uh, whatever the explanation would be, would be some physical evidence or military documentation. And those have yet to surface at this point. Uh, they might in the future, but we've exhausted all the other avenues. I mean, the testimony, virtually all the first-day witnesses are gone. Second-hand testimony uh, is tricky at best. I, 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 professionally, I don't accept anything other than first-hand testimony. I don't. It's, it's people... When, when information is passed from generation to generation, first-hand, second-hand, third-hand, that information does not stay accurate at all. So a first-hand or nothing for me, but I think Kevin's kind of the same way. Um, but yeah, you want the touchy-feely. That would get us there. I mean, uh, my professional position on Roswell is that the evidence leads you to the, the evidence and the data and the, I shouldn't say evidence. We haven't gotten to physical evidence yet. The data and the testimony. I guess that's a better way to say it leads you toward the extraterrestrial. But there's no way to prove it without documentation and physical evidence. There's no other explanation that really fits what we know about the case. Uh, but that's not definitive. It's not definitive. You need a piece of the, you need a piece of the object or documentation for the military or the government that confirms what they found and explains what they found. We don't have that yet at this point. Um, so that, that's kind of what we're at. But, but you're right, people would love to see a piece of the craft or a piece of metal or something. We are, we are physical creatures. We are human beings want something they can touch and feel and bend and smell and, and what have you. We just don't have that yet. And that can be very frustrating, but that's where we're at. So Yeah. So what was your favorite yeah. time during the week, during the last week in, in, in Roswell, during the 4th? Um. Oh gosh! <laughs> God. Oh, I don't know. God, that's that's a tough question, huh? Oh no, I know that my favorite moment was um, I couldn't find Don Smith or Kevin Randall, and this gentleman I was having to meander in front of Don Smith's Don Smith's uh, table. This is Friday, and Tom Carey hadn't arrived yet, and there was this gentleman that wanted to buy one of Don's books, and I have the book in my archive, but he he couldn't find Don, and he wanted to give me the money for the book. And the gentleman definitely had to leave at 2 p.m. And he said, can you, can you, can you take the money, give it to Don? I, I have to leave at 2 and I can't stay. And he wanted to get the book signed, but he had to go. He wasn't going to be back for the rest of the weekend. And finally, I, 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 I relented. I thought, okay, I'll take the money. And, and I, felt, I felt bad about it. I didn't feel comfortable with it. So I went looking for Don. And I was reentered around the, around the museum. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find Kevin, too. And I didn't put two and two together until I, I went to the side office by the gift shop. And Don and Tom, Don and uh, Kevin were in there. They came out, and I said, "Don, I got to give you this money." This gentleman, you know, I gave him the whole scenario. And Don has to me, "Did you sign the book?" 
And I said, yeah, I did. I said, thanks from Kevin. <laughs> and Kevin just blew up. He just allowed his head off. And Kevin has this smile. He looks like he's 10 years old. He's, in a, he's got a boyish face. And he had this great smile. They both cracked up. It turned out Kevin was interviewing Don for his podcast, uh, A Different Perspective. Um, <laughs> that was a funny, that was my funniest, my most memorable moment of the whole weekend. I was, I was hilarious. Right on. So, so yeah. do uh, people like Travis Walton, when they come, do they bring, bring an honorage? Do they bring um, a lot of merchandise or is there just a book? What, what's that look like? Um, Mr. Walton brings books, uh, Fire in the Sky, his, his account. Uh, and then he, I think he usually brings, he sells posters and DVD copies of the movie Fire in the Sky. I forgot what year that was from. But, um, so the one with D.B. Sweeney and uh, Robert Patrick. Uh, so he, but I don't, I've never seen him with an entourage. Uh, what's interesting is um, Tom Reed. Tom Reed drives in a limousine all weekend. <laughs> he, he goes in style. He's, he's out there. And he, he posts pictures on Facebook. He, the man lives, he lives large. You know, he's enjoying himself. You know? And then to each his own. You know, I'm, I'm a little more down to earth. And I'm just there for the knowledge. I'm not there to you know, party it up per se. But you know. Um, but nobody really arrives with an entourage. Not really. No, not, I, I don't know anybody that does. No, they all kind of do their own thing. Um, I don't see anybody. I, I don't know. I don't know if all the researchers are married. I don't know that. I, I think they are, but I'm not sure, but I've never seen anybody arrive with their spouse. They all travel by themselves. Um, I, it's funny. I, I recall years ago, uh, Kathleen Martin would always travel with Stan Friedman. And there's one young woman, this is like in 2012, asked me, are they a couple? She didn't know who they were. She knew they were researchers, but she hadn't, she was just getting into UFOs. And she asked me if Ms. Martin and Mr. Freeman were a couple. I said, why? She goes, well, they act like they're a couple. They're so close to each other. I said, no, they're just friends. They, they're research partners. So I, I thought that was funny that she thought they were. You, if you didn't know who they were, you would get that impression. But um, no, no entourages. They could. Travis Walton could. <laughs> but no, no one, no one does that. <laughs> I know that yeah. you you hit the uh, hit the hotel room after a, a busy busy day of research. But any idea what it's like for for others out there? Is there a, is there a hardcore UFO believer in experience or cocktail hours? Anything like that that goes on in there? <laughs> um, well, there, there's there's several restaurants slash bars that are open after the after the day's events. I mean, the, the the last lecture is usually done by five, and the panel is done by eight. So. It's not that late, so people hang out and do their thing, and uh, it, it becomes a busy town. It really does. I mean, I would think the majority of people don't do what I do. They don't wake up, go to the museum, and then go home, or go back to the hotel. I think the majority go out to dinner and hang out with friends and connect. And uh, I mean, I got invited to dinner by a UFO group out of uh, El Paso, uh, and she's a member of my group on Facebook, and. Uh, I, I turned it down. I, I was dead tired and I needed to do, I needed to do a bit of reading and then get the rest for the next day. But I would think the majority of people go out and have a beer and some dinner and talk UFOs and, and, uh, and hang out. So it's, it's, um, people have a good time around. So they really do. I need to do that one day. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it sounds like a good time. And, and, um, one of these years, probably next year that, uh, I need to get out and network a little bit more often, but um, I, I would yeah, love I will, to I will attend. Take it to lunch, yeah, yeah, I would love yeah, to you, attend you Roswell. Go, yeah, because yeah. I you mean, really do. Yeah, I like I like the. I mean, it's not a small town, but it, you know, it's not Los Angeles, and um, you no. know, it's accessible. <laughs> no. I think the people there are more accessible. It sounds like, and um, you know, it's 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 uh, sounds just like a really sweet little cozy 
cozy burg to hang out in and and uh, it, it is, i always yeah. like to check out the local the local flavor let's let's just switch gears here just to, for a little bit and i want to talk about um just in your opinion and and i know you've done a lot of research and and you're the, my go-to guy on this. What happened in July 1947 in Roswell? My my, my personal opinion, I, I, I'd like to be extraterrestrial. Um, we all would. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. My, my professional opinion, uh, I think the data that we have, the testimony we have, and all, all the entire the entire staff of officers that served under Colonel Blanchard at the at the Roswell Army Airfield, except one person, all said it was extraterrestrial. Um, I feel the data leads you to the extraterrestrial. It's the only explanation that it, that fits what we know about the case. Um, and like I said before, unfortunately, without documentation or a physical piece of the evidence, we can't prove it definitively. Uh, but that's kind of where we're at with a lot of UFO cases. We can't prove it definitively because we don't have a craft. We don't have a piece of the, of the, we don't have organic material either. Despite what some individuals or what claims have been made in the UFO community, there's not a body for all, all of us to examine. There's not a craft for us to all examine. If we, if the government has any of that, we don't have access to it. Therefore, we can't definitively pin an explanation on all these cases. But my, my professional position is it's, it's extraterrestrial. Um, the testimony, the majority of the testimony from the military officers has held up under intense scrutiny. Um, and, and it's not, it's not really proof per se, it's, it, but the military's reaction to what transpired is interesting. It, it goes against what they profess happened. They went with weather balloon. They went with mogul explanation. Well, Mogul was a top secret program, but the technology behind Mogul was not. It was a weather balloon. It was a series of balloons and radar reflectors, things of that nature. That's not top secret material. So why would you send that material to Wright Field to be reverse engineered? It's mundane material. So that's illogical. Um, you certainly want to, you certainly would not want to reverse engineer something that's mundane. That's a waste of taxpayer dollars. And yet there's the paper trail. It shows there was a flight, several flights to Wright Field from Roswell taking that material there. So clearly the military would not have, uh, would not have done that. Um, again, the testimony held up and the reaction is, is interesting because the military has a set uh, criteria of how they do everything from how they clean a toilet to refill a B-29. Uh, and there's a paper trail for everything they do. The military reacted like they got caught with their pants down, like this was an event they had never experienced before. And I've always wondered professionally if, if Sheriff Wilcox had not contacted the airbase, but instead contacted the media, would we, would we be here now? I mean, he, uh, Mac Brazel, the rancher, Contacted Wilcox, went down to Roswell, showed him the record. Wilcox contacted the airbase first. If he had not done that, the military was clearly not aware that the crash had occurred. Not until they were they were informed by Sheriff Wilcox. If he had informed the media first, then it may have been much harder for the uh, military to control the situation. 
but that didn't happen. So we're stuck with what we got now. So, uh, but yeah, professionally and, and, and personally, my, my, my position is, is extraterrestrial. So where did the investigation go wrong and, uh, when and why did it turn into a UFO crash landing and when and why did it turn into a piece of uh, scientific equipment and vice versa? What, what, what went on there? What was the mechanism and was there disinformation involved at all? Well, there, there are several, there are several points of, uh, there's several points that have been contested for a long time. Um, and the, the original cover of the Roswell Daily Record, which was July 8th, 1947, said the uh, Roswell Army Airfield captured a flying saucer on the ranch in the Roswell region. Flying saucer in 1947 did not mean alien spacecraft. That did not, there was not that connection yet. That was, that was until much later. Um, and at the time, the Air Force, or should I say the Army Air Force, the Air Force hadn't split off till later that year. Um, the interplanetary or the extraterrestrial theory behind this had not really um, become popular. Uh, there were still ideas with Soviet or uh, there was all the other explanations were on the table. Extraterrestrial really wasn't there. And it's interesting, even through the early 50s, it wasn't called extraterrestrial. It was called interplanetary. So that was a little, little different there. Um, <clears throat> um, there's been, there have been Individuals that give testimony that have been shown to be hoaxers in Charlottesville. Uh, Frank Kaufman, for one. Glenn Dennis, for one. The uh, mortician that claimed he saw, uh, he spoke to a nurse that described the bodies being, being the autopsies, this, that, and the other. That testimony didn't hold up. I, I think he hoaxed that. He lied. Um, so there's been individuals that, that have given false testimony. Does that hurt the case? Uh, it, it does to a point. Uh, the case is not as, um, it's not as full as it used to be. Uh, in the late nineties, the testimony, it was, there was a lot going on in the case. The case seemed much more stronger back then. Now, not as much. It's still a strong case. It's just not as, it's not as, um, it's not as full as it used to be. The, the, the correct word is escaping right now, but I'm going with full. It's, it's not, it's not as full of, uh, legitimate testimony as, as it, as it once was. Uh, so that's troubling. Um, uh, another troubling angle for me is that there's no diaries. Uh, nowadays people have diaries that's called Facebook or Twitter. They, they keep track of their events and their lives and they write about them online. Back in the forties, you kept a diary and you would think somebody in Roswell would have written down around early July 47. Well, you know, a flying saucer crashed. It was recovered by the guys of the airfield. It was big news for a few hours. And then the, then the army air force went with weather balloon. And that was a big deal. And that was a huge event. It was, it was interesting to this on the other. We don't have that. We don't have a single diary that mentions this event. That's very troubling. Um, that doesn't mean it didn't occur. That doesn't mean it's not extraterrestrial potentially, but it's just troubling. You would think that would that would that would happen. There would be you would think you would have letters from people writing to their family or friends somewhere else in the nation about this flying saucer crash, this event in Roswell that happened that day in forty seven. Uh, but we don't have that. Um, that doesn't debunk the case at all. But it's it's a troubling point that really isn't discussed in UFO circles. Um, uh, beyond that, there, there's been some disinformation. There's been obviously these individuals that gave false testimony, false claims about being there or seeing bodies or what have you. Um, so that's there, but that's kind of there with every case um, in the in the UFO literature. So that can be troubling. 
But again, I, I go back to the, the core of solid testimony from the military officers there that served under Blanchard and uh, William Blanchard, the the, uh, the commander of the air base at the time, except for one individual. Um, so that, that to me, uh, drives home uh, the fact that this is a strong case. And if this, if this had been a blunder by the air base, and if Blanchard had, if Blanchard had blundered, and in releasing the press uh, report to the to the press in Roswell, if there had been a mix-up and, and they fouled things up and it was a weather balloon, you would think Blanchard's career would have been hurt. But it wasn't. He ended up as a four-star general of the Pentagon. He became, uh, oh, what was it, vice Air Force chief of staff. He ended up dying in, in the early 60s of a heart attack in the Pentagon. But he went from a colonel to a four-star general. So therefore, it leads me to believe that this event in Roswell uh, was not a black eye on his career. And certainly if they had misidentified a weather balloon as a flying saucer and advertised it to the world, that would have been considered a blunder. And certainly his career would have been hurt by that. But that is, that's not the case. Uh, so that leads to the idea that they reported what they legitimately found and under orders from uh, the higher-ups with the 8th Air Force and uh, up, up the chain of command, uh, it wasn't a foul up. It was, uh, they simply were honest for one day. And then the air, the, uh, the army decided to camp down and cover up what was, tra- what was transpiring there. So, um, that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> I can go, I, we could literally have like a 10 hour show just in this one case and still not cover all the angles. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, um, it's crazy. So how much media coverage was there at that time? How long did it take for them to get there? Um, who was there and how long did that media coverage actually last? Well, the, the flying saucer announcement came out in July 8th, 1947. It was literally a, a nationwide story for about eight, 10 hours. And then it was rebooted by the army air force. And then the next issue of the, da- the daily record read general Ramey empties Roswell saucer. So it was a, it was a big story for only a few hours. Uh, it went out on the AP wire. There were newspapers from Chicago to LA to San Francisco. They carried the story. It was, it was carried on the West coast for a short amount of time. And then the balloon explanation that the army put out replaced the flying saucer story. And then it all went away. Uh, no media ever made it to the debris field of the crash site. No media ever did. Um, it was simply, the, the Army Airfield released the press statement, the newspapers printed it, and then the news statement was released by the 8th Air Force in Carswell in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, to debunk the flying saucer. It went with, with the weather balloon, and that was it. That was, that was the extent of the coverage. So it was a big story, but for a severely limited amount of time. Um, I did, on, on a lighter note, it's interesting that uh, there were two newspapers in Roswell at the time. In July 47. Um, there weren't many people in Roswell at the time. It was a small place. And you have two newspapers. It was kind of interesting that they had that. Two newspapers and I believe two radio stations. Um, so there, there was coverage of it, but just for one day, basically. And then it just disappeared. The public accepted the weather balloon explanation. And that was it. It, it disappeared. And part of that is because of the scenario, the situation at the time, we just won World War II. So, so the American public still trusted and respected the government and the military. And we both know that's not the case now. 
That hasn't been the case since, I would think, maybe the 60s or 70s. But in 47, we trusted what the military told us. We trusted what our elected leaders told us. Therefore, when they debunked the case and announced it was a, it was a weather balloon, everybody believed it. And, uh, and anybody who didn't, were they were unable to go anywhere with that belief because the military had controlled the situation. And by that time, that it was too late. It was done. So it, it took... It took Jesse Marcel, it took his uh, coming out in the late 70s to get the ball rolling to reveal what transpired there. Regardless of what the explanation is, an event took place, and for all those, dec- for all those decades, it was kind of, it, it just disappeared. So. so with so little media attention, how did the story hold up for so long, and why did it hold up for so long? I mean, what, what, what happened there? Because I, I think... To me, it, it would have had to have died off a little bit, especially in the 50s. Um, but then, you know, it's right now it's it's as big as it ever has been. Yeah. Um, yeah between 47 and 1978, I believe, I think that's what Jesse Marcel was interviewed by Stan Friedman and uh, the other researchers. Excuse me right now. Uh, between 47 and 78, the only mention of Roswell was, and there's no mention of Roswell in the Blue Book Files. Not at all. Uh, or in Project Sign or Project Grudge. There's no mention of it at all. The only time it's mentioned is in Frank Edwards' book, uh, Flying Saucer's Serious Business. From like 1965, I think that book was published. It mentions Roswell. It gets all the information wrong, but it mentions Roswell. Or a potential crash retrieval there in Roswell. Beyond that, it was never mentioned. So all the individuals that um, took part in it pretty much didn't talk about it. Um, there have been individuals that gave their testimony about the case that mentioned that uh, Colonel Blanchard, at this point he was, he was a general. He had, he had earned his star, or his first star. And uh, uh, Blanchard would occasionally discuss the case in passing with individuals that he served with. Uh, even though he wasn't serving with them at the time, people he had served with in Roswell in '47 when he came across them in passing in other military uh uh, military events, where they would go back and discuss the case in passing in a very matter-of-fact way. But in the public eye, it was never discussed. No, it wasn't until Justin Marcel decided to uh, discuss what transpired. And evidently, he'd been ready for a while. But uh, it wasn't until uh, uh, Stan Freeman was giving a talk. Uh, I can't recall the group he was giving a talk to, but he was uh, close to, uh, I think I think the town's name is Huma. Louisiana, that's where Jesse Marcel was living. He was long since retired from the Army slash Air Force. And uh, uh, an individual who was uh, working at a radio station informed uh, Mr. Freeman that uh, there was a gentleman living in that town that had handled records from a flying saucer. You, uh, you need to talk to him. And he tracked down Jesse Marcel, interviewed him, and everything else came from that. So um, it's interesting to note that uh, through the efforts of Stan Friedman, Don Schmidt, Kevin Randall, Tom Carey, uh, the majority of uh, a good percentage of the people that gave testimony about Roswell didn't come out of the woodwork. They didn't come out on their own. They had to be found. So they clearly weren't making the effort to give their testimony. They were still content being quiet. They were content living their lives and going from there. But through research efforts, they were discovered that they, they was discovered. They served in the base. They took place in this, in this event. They took place. They, they took part of this event, I should say. Um, 
And, and that's interesting because when I, when I, when I, when I research a case and I hear about, I read about an individual sought out a researcher. He, he came out of the woodwork on his own, <coughs> excuse me, to give testimony. I'm always cautious with that because I'm, the first thing I think of is, are they trying to inject themselves into the case? Which may or may not be the case, but it may pays to be cautious. As opposed to when an individual has served at an army airfield or, or is part of an event or what, whatever the case may be, and they're not looking, they're not actively seeking to give their testimony, but they are, they are discovered through research efforts. Then clear that, clear to that person is not trying to inject themselves into the case, which means they're not, they're not, they're not, uh, they don't have an angle on this. Um, I tend to accept that testimony a little easier because they haven't really made the effort to go find a researcher. Um, and that's a very subjective way to look at it, but that's just, that's just my take. But, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a complex, in some ways it's a cloudy case too. It's very complex. There's so much information. It's, it's a blur and admittedly it's the elephant in the room. It's, it's the biggest UFO case in the world. So it, it does get a little pushback because it's so, uh, dominating in the UFO literature, but that's where we're at. So, <laughs> yeah. Let me ask you this in, when were bodies first mentioned and, and what was said, who brought up bodies first? Do you know that answer to that question? I don't know specifically who did. Uh, I know I, I through my research uh, years back, I, I came across eight or nine people. They claimed to have seen the bodies and not one of them was telling the truth. Um, it didn't hold up under, under scrutiny. Um, that, that didn't happen immediately. So that, you know, Marcel was interviewed and mentioned the uh, interaction with uh, with the rancher, Mr. Brazel, uh, described going up to the debris field, described the wreckage they they examined, the I beams, the, the bendable metal, the the rather these metals had no weight to them. They were very very insignificant as far as their weight, and yet they were unbreakable. You couldn't burn them. So he described those things. Um, Descriptions of the bodies didn't come out till till more individuals were found, more testimony was given, more research was done. Um, on, on the other side of the coin, it's interesting that Walter Hoth, through his entire life, and he was the public information officer for the Roswell Army Airfield, he was the one that wrote the press release. He was ordered by Colonel Blanchard to write the press release. He gave it to the Roswell Daily Record. Um, he never mentioned bodies. He mentioned... Uh, that he asked Colonel Blanchard if he could see the bodies and was told no. And then closer to his death, he gave an affidavit, a sworn affidavit that was notarized and signed. And in that, in that affidavit, he mentioned he did see bodies. So he changed his story. He changed his testimony. Now, does that make that testimony illegitimate? Perhaps, perhaps not. I mean, he may have been cautious in what he was saying. Perhaps he was not wanting to divulge everything until the very end when he was knew he was, didn't have long for this world or it's not legitimate. We don't know. Um, but there's testimonies to, to suggest that, uh, the idea that there's been three or four bodies recovered. There's been some testimony to suggest that one of the bodies, one of the creatures was alive. Um, that that's, that's extremely, uh, it's not extremely, but it is speculative on some point. Um, because that's the testimony that's been the most 
troublesome to confirm. Um, but again, I go back to the military officers that served under Blanchard. Uh, some of them did mention bodies. Yeah, to greater or lesser degrees, they did. And because their testimony has not faltered under examination, I still take it at face value. Um, and, I, and you know me, I'm, very, I'm a very cautious examiner of this data. Uh, but I never assume, it's like a double-edged sword, I never assume somebody, I never assume what person's testimony is 100% accurate. But at the same time, if after examination it's held up, then I never assume it's not illegitimate. And if, 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 I, if I've examined someone's testimony and they've, they've, no red flags have come up and there's, there's been no sign that they are lying about this, then it has to be taken at face value. So the claims about bodies, uh, there is some uh, testimony to suggest that, and that testimony is held up. So that's fascinating. I mean, organic material, that, that, that would be a big deal. But we don't have access to it. So, yeah. <laughs> huge, huge deal if there's bodies there. I mean, it's... Um, oh, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, that changes everything, everything, everything. But uh, So um, yeah. Mr. Brazell, as he reported the events that unfolded there, you know, he found some material like foil, he, he reported. He found uh, some rubber, yeah. some yeah. Strong, strong sticks, and he brought this debris home in a small bundle. And when I read this account, it does sound like kind of like a weather balloon. But, um, of course, Project Mogul, as you mentioned, was happening at the time, and, and, and that was very secret. So um, what are your thoughts on the possibility of this being debris of American experiments and, and even possibly Project Mogul? Well, that's, I, I think that's one of the, it's one of the more subjective uh, scenarios that leads me to the extraterrestrial uh, because Mogul was not top-secret material. The project was, but the material used weren't. Um, there were pictures of balloon launches that were in next day in, uh, the Albuquerque, it was the Albuquerque newspaper on, on the, the title was drawn a blank, but, uh, the material was not secret. Uh, and weather balloons were launched all the time. Ranchers found them all the time. Uh, they were, they knew what weather balloons looked like. Certainly the military personnel at Roswell Army Airfield would know what a military, what a weather balloon looked like. They launched them every day. This would not have been unfamiliar material. Um, uh, two, it's, it's, it's very troubling. Then the, the air force has asked the public to accept this, but the idea that, uh, the 509 bomb group, which, excuse me, the 509th bomb group, which is the only atomically armed unit in the world was based in Roswell. Therefore we would have the highest quality individuals there at that airfield. It would make sense to have those individuals there because you're guarding and, and operating potentially atomic weapons. The idea that these individuals would not be able to identify weather balloons is preposterous to me. I mean, uh, Jesse Marcel was an intelligence officer. He saw weather balloons launched every single day from Roswell Army Airfield, every day, without fail. And the idea that they came across a debris fuel from a weather balloon and all of a sudden he couldn't identify it, he thought it was a flying saucer, that's just, that, that's just ridiculous. Um, to me, to my way of thinking. Um, now, you're right. Some of the debris is reminiscent of uh, some of the materials in a weather balloon. I mean, you have, you have I-beams that may have constructed something on a, on a mobile balloon, a foil material, which would be uh, similar to um, radar reflective apparatus on a mobile balloon. Um, 
but that's as far as it goes. Uh, I-beams don't have markings on the interior. Uh, foil used in weather balloons is not uh, weightless. Uh, metal used in weather balloons, even though it's there's not much metal, but there is some metal in, in the weather balloon construction of these mogul balloons. Uh, the metal used in, in mogul um, apparatus was bendable, breakable, burnable. It was, it was terrestrial in nature. Uh, the metal described by Marcel and many others at the airfield described things that they could not be broken by a sledgehammer. They couldn't cut it. They couldn't burn it. And when they folded it numerous times, it would pop back into its original shape without any creases. That was beyond our technology in 47. Um, so on one hand, it's, it's, it can be construed as a weather balloon material, a weather balloons material, I should say. Um, but the specifics of the material that is described is or was beyond our technology then. And uh, we don't have any, we have materials that are similar now, but we're in 2019, it's not in 1947. So it's still, and then another issue with the mogul explanation is there were no mogul flights on that day. Um, there's documentation to show that there weren't any mogul flights on the day the uh, debris field was discovered. Now the debris field had been there for a while, uh, but uh, the rancher um, had admitted that he'd recovered weather balloons before. And I think that's a very important point. He he had recovered weather balloons before on the property. Therefore, he would have recognized them. He would not have wasted the gas for the time of the money to drive familiar material down to Roswell to reward to the sheriff. If it was, if it was another weather balloon, he simply would have gathered it up off the field and that would have been the end of it. He didn't do that. Uh, back in 47, there weren't any interstates. He was a working man. And to spend time away from work and to spend gas and money to go drive down a weather balloon to report to the sheriff, that again is illogical. It clearly was something he didn't recognize, which again doesn't get us to the extraterrestrial. But it was material he did not recognize. And he felt it was, it demanded him going to the sheriff. So he took the day off of work and spent the gas money and the tire wear to go down to Roswell, which was over an hour and a half drive for him at the time over bad roads to take in debris. He didn't recognize. Um, he would not have done that if it was a weather balloon. So that's, that's another argument for something. What's a good term? Something anomalous, at least, uh, in favor of or against the weather balloon explanation. Yeah. I think that at that time too, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about, uh, the different, different types of inflatables that the U S government had, because at that time, um, yeah, they did acknowledge, they didn't acknowledge mogul at the time, but that was happening. And there was a lot of government money at that time, um, in our history spent on research of high altitude objects, which, which included, uh, a high altitude and, and rather large inflatables, right? Yeah. Yeah. It did. Yeah. I think it was New York university. Uh, NYU was doing, uh, experiments with that. Um, so there were, there were flights and experiments going on, and Mogul was a top-secret program which utilized that technology. Um, but it wasn't hidden very well. It wasn't like this was a secret project, and it was being uh, operated uh, beyond the sight of prying eyes. This was the, these flights were going up um, in, in plain view, and it wasn't it wasn't a secret. It wasn't like 
Uh, we're experimenting with uh, the SR-71 or the F-117 Area 51, and we're keeping it away from public view. Uh, mogul balloons were launched uh, at different air bases, and they weren't launched in secret. They were simply launched. The purpose of them was top secret, but the apparatus wasn't. Uh, so, um, it's, it, and, and the document, and again, I'm a big stickler for documentation. The documentation shows that on certain days there weren't flights, uh, and, and, and that it, it wasn't, the only thing top secret was the project, but not the materials. And that's a, that's an important distinction the debunkers don't really embrace. They assume that Mogul was secret, therefore the entire apparatus was secret. No, the, the project was, but the materials used weren't. It's almost like, I guess a good analogy or a bad analogy, I guess, is like, okay, uh, you and I are top secret agents. We both work with the CIA. We're on a top secret mission. But the material we use isn't top secret. We're using suits, we're using revolvers, we're using handcuffs, we're using walkie-talkies, our cell phones. Uh, the the materials that we use to accomplish our mission are not top secret. They're known to the public. Only our mission is. And Mogul is the same way. Mogul's mission was top secret, but the apparatus wasn't. And um, it, it's I, I'll hear debunkers say, well, Marcel was fooled by weather balloon material, and uh, that's very troubling <laughs> to think that... Uh, Individuals assigned to an airbase that's guarding or is or could be op, or could be uh, ordered to use atomic weapons couldn't identify weather balloon. That's very troubling. <laughs> if that was true, but I, I don't feel that's true at all. No, it's it's just I think it's just a preposterous argument that should be cast aside. But yeah, that's just me. But uh, yeah, any talk or evidence uh, that well, I shouldn't say evidence, but any talk or, or rumors that the initial evidence that was found by uh, Brazil was was taken from him and 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 confiscated. Well, the the uh, testimony, the line of the testimony goes that the uh, the material was there were crews sent from our Brazil Army Airfield to recover every bit of debris. Uh, the area was cordoned off. Roads were shut down, and the uh, Army Air Corps, the personnel from the Army Airfield, were sent to the debris field to recover every bit of evidence that they could. It was taken back to Roswell Army Airfield and flown, flown off to Wright Field, which became Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in uh, late 47. Um, so that's where all that material went. Um, uh, Mr. Brazel, the rancher, uh, he drove the material down to Roswell. He didn't keep any of it for himself, though. He didn't. Um, there is testimony to suggest his son, Bill Brazel, did recover some, some uh, material in years later. After thunderstorms and just through, uh, just to have walked on the ranch, he came across the material uh, in later years. Uh, but according to his testimony, he made the mistake of discussing some of this material with a friend at Corona. Corona, New Mexico was a town actually closer to the debris field than Roswell is. But Mr. Bill Brazel, his son, was at Corona discussing it with some friends, and according to his testimony, the very next day, some military personnel showed up at his house and confiscated the material. So even several years after the event occurred, they were still making efforts to recover any debris they couldn't find. Um, the, the description of the debris that, that was recovered, there was a lot of small pieces. Uh, whatever had happened to this 
I guess we, we'll use the word craft. Whatever happened to this craft was explosive. It completely destroyed the, uh, the structure of the, of the thing. So the wreckage was not only larger pieces that were more identifiable as far as shape and form, there were a lot of small pieces. Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken such, uh, such uh, Herculean efforts to pick up every single piece. Uh, that, but that's where we're at. Um, so no one was able to confiscate any pieces. And uh, where it is now, uh, your guess is as good as mine. My gut tells me it's still a right field, right past an airport space. My gut tells me that because that's where they would, that's where they were reversing to do. That's where they would examine such evidence, and they wouldn't really have any motivation to move it anywhere else. But that's just a guess in my part. But uh, none, it, as far as I know, nobody nobody confiscated anything, and nothing's coming to light. So um, we're stuck with no physical evidence. Is there anything left to discover in Roswell, New Mexico? Well, if, if uh, Frank Kimbler is able to find some physical evidence that is anomalous in nature and shows, reveals isotopes that are non-terrestrial in nature, that would be physical evidence. Um, he has tested several pieces over the years, and he has come across a couple of them that are very anomalous, that, are, that have isotopes that are borderline non-terrestrial, that are very strange. Um, and he's still, and of course, testing is, is not inexpensive. So he's still trying to raise funds to get more, uh, more science done on these pieces. And if one of those shows to be non-terrestrial nature, that would be physical evidence. Because if these isotopes are not earthly, by definition, that's extraterrestrial. So that would be one way to confirm a, uh, a definitive explanation. Uh, the other would be if we were able to do, if we were able to uh, find some military documentation for this event. Um, for many researchers, the MJ-12 documents confirmed Roswell. Uh, my professional position is that the MJ-12 documents are hoaxes, so it doesn't confirm Roswell. Uh, but that's what we would need. We would need we would need verified documentation of something extraterrestrial. And that, that documentation needs to be traced back to its origin with the military or the government. It would be one of those two avenues. Otherwise, uh, we're stuck with what we got. We, we, there's, there's nothing new other than those two avenues. That's where we're at right now, and that's where we're stuck with until something, something changes. Are you yourself going to keep looking? Uh, I, I, I haven't in 10 years. Yeah. What, what, yeah, would, I, I, what would spark you, your interest again? What would have to happen? Some documentation. Because I don't, I don't have the... Uh, uh, my degree is in engineering. I'm not, I'm not qualified to examine physical evidence and, and examine it in the way that Mr. Kimbler has. And that's, his, that's his field of training. So uh, that's, his, that's his avenue, and he's pursuing it in a scientific manner. Um, Documentation would be interesting to me because that's something you could you could you could vet that you could try to find the providence of that you could you could backtrack that to its original source you could attempt to vet it and find out the information is legitimate and if it if you're able to track if you track down to the uh, government or the military uh, group that created the documentation that would go a long way um, of course it would have to be it would have to be addressing specifically this event. 
uh, that has not come to light yet. So that would, that would be a big deal. Um, but it's, it's 72 years after the, after the fact. And, uh, that has to be very difficult at this point. Um, freedom of information act requests don't work as well as they used to. So that, that's troublesome too. So, but documentation would interest me. Uh, that would perk my interest again, but, um, I guess the last decade, I haven't really done any research on Roswell other than examining other people's work from Roswell. The, the researcher, Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, Mr. Randall, those guys, examining their work and increasing, you know, and documenting that and adding that to my archives here. But um, I, I'm just, yeah, that, that's kind of where it's at now. It, it, it's almost a dead end. It's almost a cold case. Almost. Well, um, was Roswell the first account of government liquidators and uh, did that inspire Men in Black? Gosh, Men in Black. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, um, I know there were Men in Black accounts from the 50s. I don't know if they go back that far to the 40s. In, the, I'm, I'm in sure this case, though, it certainly sounds like, I mean, there was something removed. There was. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was I don't, I don't think you can, you can yeah. deny that, that there was something removed and, and there was material oh, no, there and no. it, it went yeah. somewhere. And, um, you know, the, the people who, who removed this material um, were, were uh, mysterious nonetheless. And the whole mystique of the area is, is you know, is, is kind of riding on the backs of, of these people that, that disappeared in the night with this material. Yeah, these were... and. But I wouldn't go men in black with that. I mean, these were these were military personnel from the airbase sent to recover the debris. So we know that happened. We don't know what the debris what the debris was. We don't know if it was extraterrestrial. We don't know we don't know what it was. But but we know that personnel and we're talking regular personnel. We're not talking men in black. We're not talking um, any kind of uh, black ops operation. We're talking just regular personnel that were ordered to. Travel to the, they were transferred to the uh, debris field to recover the debris that was there. So that transpired. The debris was flown to Wright Field. There's documentation to prove that, and that confirms that did transpire. Um, beyond that, we don't know where it went. It was, uh, it's, it's, it's become top, when it arrived at Wright Field, it basically disappeared. It disappeared from the public record. So that's where we're at. Um, so the recovery, that occurred. The flights to Wright Field, that occurred. We don't know what they recovered, but they did recover something. That, that did transpire. Um, so it was, far, it was far less of a, uh, say, government operative kind of deal. It was just it was a military operation that became top secret. That's pretty much what it was. What it was. Um, I, a man in black connection, I, I, of, the, of the testimony from individuals that is held up under scrutiny, that they discussed having, uh, like Bill Brazel, having uh, the debris taken from him, they recovered. They were military personnel. They weren't many black in regular civilian clothes. These were military personnel. So the military, the Army, or the slash the Air Force after late 47, they were the ones conducting recovery operations. They were the ones still involved in uh, tamping down the case. I don't want to use the word cover-up, but they're tamping down the importance of the case. They're the ones trying to recover uh, Rocky, they were the ones trying to continue this, uh, I guess for a better term, a cover-up. It was, it was the military doing that, uh, as opposed to, in later decades, what's reported are uh, non-military operatives, more, I guess, government operatives, men in suits, 
men in black, uh, <laughs> not not like a colonel coming to your house and asking for the brief. So so in Roswell, it's not it's not men in black. It's more just it's just a military recovery slash cover up. So was there a reason for disinformation, or was there an opportunity to create disinformation? And did the government go for it in 1947? Um. I, I, I really don't use the word disinformation with the Roswell case. It was, I think it was just a plain cover up. They, they assigned, instead of flying saucer, they debunked it and said this was a weather balloon and that was it. They gave a false story to cover up what really happened. And that was it. That was the end of the story. Um, there was no real need to dis, there was no real need for disinformation because the public accepted it. The public bought the balloon explanation and it, the story died. Um, if the story had not died, if the public was still demanding answers, then there would have been a need for disinformation to try to tamp down on the importance of the case, to try to get people to give up looking for answers. Uh, but the public bought the balloon story, and that was it. The story died, and Roswell disappeared. So there was no need for disinformation. Um, in later years, there certainly been disinformation conducted by government and military officials. We both know that. Um, and we come to, today, to today's day and age, in today's UFO community, there's no need for disinformation at all because the community is its own worst enemy. Uh, so um, random documents can be released to the UFO community, and I go back to MJ-12, and there's so many red flags with that, with those series of documents, you think you were in red China. It's, it's crazy. Uh, but those documents are, are accepted at face value instead of, uh, instead of what they are. Um, so there's no, it wasn't really disinformation. Roswell was just, uh, it was a, it was a cover up attempt and the cover up worked because the public bought it. And, and that was it. Uh, I can't think of another UFO case where a cover up ensued that was so effective. I mean, the story was big for a few hours. Then the army decided it was a weather balloon. And the story died. It was gone. Roswell disappeared from the news. Roswell disappeared from the news period. It was gone till 78. Um, that was a pretty effective cover-up. I mean, it went from big news to no news in less than 24 hours. Um, very effective on their part. Does rumor of a government owning a flying saucer equate to a powerful nation in the eyes of our enemy? Huh. I don't know. I'm going to say yes. <sighs> yeah, I, I guess I, I would think so. Yeah, I guess uh, uh, an an enemy nation. Let's let's say let's say this is the '80s, and we're back to U.S. USSR. If the Soviets knew we had a flying saucer in our possession, uh, should they be leery? They they probably think oh, well, they're probably reverse engineering this saucer. They have technology we don't have. We may be at a military disadvantage. Um, now, I, I, I guess that would be a good way to look at it. Yeah, they, they would. That would be. Uh, it would be advantageous to have our enemies think we had a blind saucer. Uh, they may think we're trying to reverse engineer it. So, um, yeah, I believe so. And I think that might have been a motivation for the cover-up of Roswell, because clearly the military and the government knew the Cold War was about to ensue. They knew the Soviets, despite them being our allies in World War II, 
that was a that was they were our allies out of convenience because the the Nazis were the lesser were the greater two evils. So once we won that war, we knew the Cold War was going to start up. And the last we wanted the last thing we wanted the Soviets to know was that we recovered something extraterrestrial or something anomalous. So uh, and then there's documentation to show that the Soviets were interested. The Soviets were interested in UFOs. I mean, Stalin was Stalin was very interested in the UFO phenomenon. He clearly um, he may not he may not have known directly, but he clearly had a strong interest in uh, the potential for alien visitation. So, uh, but but you're right. If if one country thinks another country has extraterrestrial hardware, it's it somehow recovered. Yeah, they're going to be uh, very interested and kind of threatened by that. Yeah, I think you're right. What's coming up next for you? What I mean, you're busy, man, and and uh, I, I see <laughs> I see online, and so what's next, man? Uh, I'm doing podcasts all the time, <laughs> which is great. I, know I get to talk about, cool. Yeah, I, I was listening. About I was boat. listening to you last night, and it was fantastic. I got another one tomorrow. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I do my weekly broadcast on my blog page. I got I got another podcast next week. Um, I have a paranormal conference. I'm, I'm speaking at in September here in San Antonio. I'm the only UFO guy there, so. I don't know how crazy the crowd's going to be because all the other, the other speakers are about, they're discussing remote viewing and ghosts and ESP and I'm talking about UFOs. That, so I may not fit well, but they wanted me, so I'm there. And then, I mean, uh, I may have another small festival here in San, San Antonio on my period in late August. Um, we'll see if that, if that comes to fruition, but it's mainly been podcasts. And then, uh, now that Roswell is done, I'm going to get back to my reading and research, and uh, and um, I'm trying to finish a scientific paper on on the UFO issue uh, uh, that's kind of dealing with Texas sightings. I'm trying to finish that up before the September conference. I'm almost done with it, so it's just a data. It's just a, a scientific paper on the data, what's being reported, and uh, and hopefully I'll get that done. But yeah, I'm trying to stay busy. Trying to stay busy. So I'm constantly on the lookout for, for really, really good UFO books, um, uh, related phenomenon. And, um, how do you find something like that? Because as you know, there's a lot of this, a lot of stuff out there and people are putting out books and a lot of them look the same and you don't really realize actually how many there are until you get on Amazon and, and start doing a search. <laughs> there's a lot of books there. I mean, what are, what are you looking at? What are you looking for? <laughs> there's only a few, um, I look for books that have tons of footnotes. I want to, I want to see that the author did the work to vet the information he's using. If they're referring to a book, say from the eighties or the seventies or the sixties, I want to see that that author did the work to find out if the information he's quoting is legitimate. That's a big deal for me. Um, because it's very easy to write a book about what a person, what an author feels their position on a, on a subject or case or what have you. But if they're not doing research to find out if that conclusion is arrived at in the correct manner, that's very troubling. Um, uh, I go back to Kevin Randall. Kevin Randall's books, he, he has, he has, it, it's ridiculous how well he footnotes his work. I mean, he backtracks every bit of information all the way back to its original source. If it's not, if it's not legitimate, he doesn't use it. He does his homework a lot. He's incredible at that. It's, it's, and that, that adds to his mystique as a researcher. Other authors, not so much. 
And uh, I'm kind of troubled by authors that put out like three or four books a year. I'm thinking, God, that's, that's, that's your turn that sell out pretty fast. Are you doing your homework? Are you really vetting the information you're using? I, I'm, I'm worried that some don't. So um, I, don't, I, I don't really buy many books anymore. I, I, I have a massive collection of older books. Um, but as time goes on, information changes. I, uh, cases change. I, I remember, I ever read a book from, uh, well, what was it? Timothy Good. Timothy Good, above, above Top Secret. I think that's from the early 90s. He quoted a couple of books from the 60s that were written by, uh, Coral and Jim Lorenzen, the, uh, the head of the leaders of APRO back in the day. And the information he quoted was incorrect. I backtracked. I actually have the books from the Lorenzans that he quoted from. And I found the information in their book, and it was different from what he recorded. So what he put down in his book was inaccurate. And if somebody doesn't do their homework and look that up, the information in his book is looked at as accurate when it isn't. And that's, that's very troubling. Uh, so I'm, I'm very picky about what books I will examine. And although I do have some books in my collection that – um, are from skeptics and debunkers. I want to see both sides of the story. So it, it's good to have that. But, um, yeah, there are, there are certainly a lot of books out there. A lot of books, a lot of material to, to, uh, look into. And it, it pays dividends to look at all angles, not just, not just information that confirms your own belief, but information that confirms other beliefs that really take a look at all the information and make your mind from there. It, it really pays dividends to do that. What was the first book that you picked up? Uh, that dealt with UFOs, that UFO was the topic, and when was that? Um, the first book I ever picked up, it was uh, Incident at Exeter from uh, John G. Fuller. That book came out in 1966, I think, uh, late 60s. And uh, it dealt with the sightings in Exeter, New Hampshire that year. Uh, he's the author that also wrote The Interrupted Journey, which concerned the uh, Betty Barney Hill abduction case also in New Hampshire. Uh, I, I had a used copy. I bought a used copy of Incident Exeter. I must have been in college. I think it was like a freshman in college here in San Antonio. And I read it, and I, was, I found it very interesting. But I really didn't uh, start looking into the UFO issue until I was a couple of years before I graduated. But that book was the first one I really, the first one I bought and read. And I still have it. It's really beat up. <laughs> but it's, it's the first print hardcover, so I got a whole lot of that. But that was that. It's still it's still a classic work in the UFO literature because John Fuller was a uh, he was a great journalist, and he, which means he was objective. He was always looking for data and trying to find out if the data was objective, if it was legitimate. So his book um, his book doesn't advocate the extraterrestrial, but it simply provides the data and lets the reader decide. And I like that approach. Uh, but that was the first one, and then from then on, it's just. Uh, for a while there, I was buying books left and right, and I've kind of slowed down now. Now I'm trying to now I'm collecting journals and newsletters and and things of that nature uh, to uh, to get them off the street and get them safe. So, well, William Poland, I thank you very much for joining me, and I'd like to to give you the final word tonight on Roswell, New Mexico. Thanks for having me on. I, I, it, it's a distinct honor and privilege to be on your show. Um, yeah, I, professionally, I feel Roswell is an extraterrestrial event. Uh, the data leads me to that conclusion. Yeah, we are unable to prove it because we have not yet recovered 
a physical piece of the craft, and we've yet to recover legitimate military documentation to confirm the event or confirm the the uh, explanation of the event. But professionally and personally, I feel Roswell was an extraterrestrial event, and perhaps perhaps the first crash retrieval of a UFO. Good thoughts. Thank you so much, William Pullen, for joining me. And now you're a big part of this elite group that I've assembled, and I hope <laughs> you'll enjoy. The next time wow. we get together, sometime in the near future, because I'm, <laughs> I'm totally amazed, and, and thank you very much, and, and good luck, and, and I'm going to be looking out for you and looking for your uh, looking for you on podcasts and also listen to your own, your commentary on your Facebook page, which I love all the time. Oh, thank you so much. I'm at your service, my friend. Thank you. Good night. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records.